Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Good afternoon. I am Larry Jacobs. I am a faculty at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs and direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is bringing you today's conversation. Welcome and thank you for joining today's program, What You Need to Know About Trump's Supporters. Our guest today is pollster and political scientist Stanley Greenberg. Stanley is a New York Times bestselling author. He's a former professor at Yale University. He's been a polling advisor to presidents, prime ministers, CEOs around the world and here in Minnesota. And he's currently working in multiple countries on climate change. Stan Greenberg, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, Larry. I'm delighted to be back. I was there in person. This is vir- this is virtual, but you remember you remember that, don't you? When you I do. I think was, I think you were working on one of your books. We had a little seminar, mm. and that was uh, great. And also, Let's you were very again. kind. Mm. You were very kind to me when I was working on a book about the Clinton administration, and we invited me to chat about your experiences in the administration at the time, and that was quite helpful. I want to go back about almost four decades ago, you did a, um, a, a very important study of a, a county just north of Detroit. It's called Macomb County um, in Michigan. And it's largely white working class auto worker uh, area. And the study you did in 1985 really put a spotlight on the fact that Democrats were losing the working class and that Republicans were gaining their their uh, loyalties. Why was that happening? Well, you know, it was happening because of the racial transformation of the country. Uh, We were just going through the civil rights movement, um, you know, the riots in Detroit and Northern cities, you know, busing. And so it was a period of real disruption. And these white working class Catholic, ethnic Catholic voters were the base of the Democratic Party that John Kennedy you know, led um, and won up, you know, big majorities. And his biggest, biggest majority is why I went there. His biggest majority was in Macomb, you know, Macomb County and, you know, suburban, you know, Detroit. And what I, you know, what I heard, you know, then was they felt betrayed, but they were still, they still wanted to be Democrats, even though they voted for Ronald Reagan. I think we're in a different position now, by the way, even though they vote, you know, even though they voted for Ronald Reagan, they were waiting for the Democrats to understand their values, uh, have government programs that were important to them, like universal health care. And, you know, I advised, you know, Bill Clinton as he won back those you know, counties. Barack Obama, you know, won uh, in the end, you know, won, you know, Macomb you know, County before Trump, you know, won it uh, when, when he ran. Uh, and it's a very different moment, you know, because there we were dealing with a, a battle to persuade working class voters. What Trump has done by making the Republican Party the MAGA Party, make America great again, save you know save you know save America from a multiracial young female leftist um, America that's poised to control all the levers of power, cultural and political, and only you know only by voting Republican um, can you save the republic. Um, and the impact of that was, you know, in two ways. One, he persuaded a lot of working class voters who had built up resentments against the elites. But the second and more, more important, he got tens of millions of voters to vote who never voted before. These were in rural areas, white working class voters. Um, and they came into the electorate, they changed the party. Uh, they made it possible for him to win uh, in 2016 and 20. You said in a report that you uh, put out in May of, of this year, 2021, you said that the, the Republican Party under Donald Trump uh, was in the battle for the future of white people in a multicultural America. And 
you you fill that out by saying the the kind of charges that Donald Trump has made since um, the 2020 election outcomes um, uh, about stolen elections, illegal voting procedures, stuffing ballot box um, was a kind of a, a narrative that was tapping into, as you put it, deep hostility to Black Lives Matter, undocumented immigrants, and Antifa. Um, is this really kind of, um, you know, uh, a, a, a profound shift in the Republican Party that is uh, transforming our politics? Look, when, when we write about this period, uh, I mean, we're going to have to look at Donald Trump as an anti-democratic demagogue, but who was incredibly effective um, um, in transforming the Republican Party, you know, and, you know, and in some ways transforming the country in terms of the level of polarization and division and putting the, the values of democracy, you know, on the, at risk. Uh, but it wasn't ordained. That is, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't certain to happen. When he won, the, when he won the nomination, and when he was elected, um, he had fifty-five percent support within the Republican Party. If you look at his actual vote, when you look at the factions in which he had his base, which was in the Tea Party and the Evangelicals, it was fifty-five percent, you know, of the party. Uh, the moderates were, you know, near third, you know, a third of the voters, and you also had the McCain conservatives, um, you know, that made up about forty-five percent uh, of the Republican Party. Um, but he's waged the war on the, you know, on those leaders and those voters. Uh, the result of that was they, you know, they've been pushed out of the party. The other thing is with his constant rallies and his constantly battle to save America, he's brought more and more people to become voters who are not voters before. The result is that, you know, two thirds of the Republican Party are now absolute Trump loyalists. Uh, so he has full control of the Republican Party. And so any, so any narrative that you know, plays out now, uh, he does from that you know, base. Um, and he's convinced that base that the Democrats were poised, these leftist you know, Democrats um, who are at war with white people and, and, and working people uh, and aligned with the cultural and you know, liberal cultural and economic elites uh, we're going to have full control of the country. And voting took on the motivation of, you had to vote to save the country. So if you, if you look at like the difference between you know, Republican voters and Biden voters in, in the last election, people pointed out that, well, Biden's, Biden's voters were about three points less likely to support a Democrat further down the ballot. You know, that's true. But the difference is the Republicans were bringing in new voters who are coming in to save America, and they had to vote for every Republican. That was their whole rationale. Biden's rationale was, I can work with both parties, let me give me a chance. He was not waging total war on the Republican Party the way Trump was waging war on the Democratic Party as the, as the instrument you know, of Antifa, you know, undocumented immigrants, you know, trying to marginalize white people. Yeah. Um, of course, one of the things, and you point this out, is that there are Republicans and conservatives who are not supportive of Donald Trump. And so Donald Trump has mm. solidified that two-thirds, but is there a risk that Donald Trump's strategy um, could uh, sap uh, the winning margins for Republicans and competitive races for Congress, mm -hmm. for Senate? I don't know. I don't know. The, I mean, the, the, look, something is quite different. Mm -hmm. You know, the moderates who are a bigger segment, you know, who are more likely to be women, more likely to be you know, pro-choice, they have like gotten to be a smaller and smaller segment um, and are, you know, are leaving the Republican Party in, in a kind of a, re a realignment. And they're, they're gone. But the McCain conservatives are really interesting, you know, which really, I think, the Liz Cheney is kind of part is kind of part of that world that they are now fighting back. They are 
their proportion has not dropped. They're staying within the Republican Party, and they are, you know, they are trying to, you know, to fight, you know, Trump and his worldview. Now, I don't know what they do in the general election. Do they not vote? Do they, you know, do they defect, you know, to the Democrats? But one, you know, one part of the story though is these parts of the Republican Party that aren't, you know, aren't part of that narrative. Up until now, he's been able to motivate, increase turnout, new voters in a way that I don't want to underestimate and because they're still engaged. I mean, one of the kind of depressing things about my own data that I'm looking at is that Trump voters, Republicans are much, much more engaged um, than our, you know, our Democrats and our, and our base. Um, and that could easily translate, you know, in the midterms into higher turnout. Yeah, I want to get to the midterms in a second, but before we leave this topic, I want to just explore the, the um, potential contradictions um, yeah. in, the, in the Trump phenomenon and, and the enormous support that he currently control, uh, possesses as he's remade the Republican Party in his image. Um, uh, we've got suburban women uh, who, who appear not to be drawn to this guy because of his comments about women. Mm -hmm. We've got a growing proportion of the electorate who are non-white. Um, and may have been foreign born. Um, and the media talks a lot about how Republicans are getting, um, you know, some of the Latinx in Florida and Texas. But the bigger story is the Democrats are, are amassing, you know, kind of a New Deal coalition. So my question to you is, again, do you think Donald Trump's hard-edged ethnic nationalism, you know, is posing a risk to the Republican Party in winning majorities? Let me let me tell you why I am cautious, you know, on that on that on that one piece in that argument, because I'm one of the people who made the case that we're talking about a rising American electorate, you know, a new majority that involves you know millennials and Gen Z voters, who are you know a majority, you know, people of color. Uh, the census, if you look at that data, is really impressive. The the growth of the Hispanic and Latino population um, uh, and, and dominance, you know, in millennial and Gen Z, um, unmarried women, the majority of voters are unmarried, the women are married, we're heavily democratic. Every group, every group that's grow growing. Um, and, and, and we also have more college educated because younger tend to be you know, more college educated. He's driving away all of those voters now. The reason why Republicans are so, Trump and the Republicans are so motivated is because of all of those facts, the demographic problem. Now, I assumed that we'd be playing by the same rules um, and that the trends you're talking about will produce elections which they, and I think it would have produced it already. Um, you know, for them to increase their turnout significantly more, uh, you know, than Democrats, uh, in the last election, trying to overcome that demographic trend. So they, they've maintained the white non-college proportion, even though it's dropped as a proportion of the eligible population by increasing the turnout. Yeah. Now, do I think that's stopped? <laughs> um, it's harder and harder to do it. He's not president. You know, can he you know, motivate in the, you know, in the same way? But what I see happening is them changing the rules of the game. I think what's come out of this election is a belief that these forces are so inevitable and so powerful that you have to change the rules of the game so that you don't have winning these voters and winning these states enable you to get control of the Senate or you know, win the presidency. I think that's the game they are now fighting. It's not about the group, different groups in the electorate. It's about changing the rules of the game so they can continue to hold power even though they've lost these groups. So you're referring to the changes in um, election law in a number of Republican controlled states and whether this is going to, you know, hold off what appears to be a transition that we're, we're part of. You know, there's not a lot of research on this, but, you know, the little bit of research that has been done tends to suggest that when you have these changes in election law that have favored Republicans, let's say in Florida, mm -hmm. that there's a counter mobilization yep. uh, that boosts the turnout among voters of color. Um, yep. 
So I, I, I understand what you're saying and I think it's legitimate. I would just say, as you've been saying, there's some uncertainty about it. Yes, the, um, you know, the, I mean, if you had, you know, if, if you have Republicans win the house without looking at anything else that's happening, you know, Democrats holding onto the house is, is hard. There's gotta be, you're really working against history for Democrats to hold the house given how small their majority combined with reapportionment. Even if it was like replicating the last election very close, uh, it would you know, be hard to hold the house. So if the Republicans have, you know, the, the, are the speaker um, and you have contested states uh, where you have Republican governors or legislatures saying, we have electors that, you know, picked, uh, you know, Trump um, slate of electors, it's gonna be a huge battle. Now, you're also gonna have people in the street in reaction to that. You know, right. if they, this is not, you know, they don't have total control of the story. And you're right, it may be that the, the offsetting mobilization, the combination with demographic trends, produces wins by such margins that it's just very, you know, very hard to do. And we, and we also don't know, we also don't know what the courts will do. The courts were, I think, impressive in not, in not ruling for them in, in, in any of these cases. Um, and the, it may well be, you know, the courts, you know, are not an institution that supports them when they create a, a counting of votes that have only Republicans overseeing it, which is what they're headed toward, uh, where they give, made the legislature um, the governing body for the election. You know, will the, you know, will the courts insist there be representative of both parties and, you know, and offset what they're trying to do? So for folks who are kind of following along here, I'm talking with Stan Greenberg, and we started off talking about a study that Stan Greenberg did almost four decades ago, uh, <laughs> 1985, <laughs> um, uh, of, um, of Macomb County in Michigan, which is just north of Detroit. And this was a county that, that John Kennedy won by almost two thirds, that Ronald Reagan turned around and won by almost two thirds. Barack Obama won it, and then in 2016, uh, Donald Trump won it. And so the question is, why is this working class uh, county um, kind of moving back and forth? And the argument Stan Greenberg is making is that uh, race is a very important part, and particularly Donald Trump and his total war approach um, has had enormous impact. Um, and uh, Stan, correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems to me that that when you're asked the question, does Donald Trump have uh, a path to winning the Republican nomination in 2024, you see that as quite party. possible. Yes, uh, it's, I mean, it's overwhelmingly his party, you know, by who he's mobilized to be there, and I'm sure will mobilize again. Um, the moderates have given, you know, have given up on them. Democrats have done amazingly well to look at you know, particularly in the Midwest, if you look at fairly, you know, Republican, you know, counties, um, where, you know, had a lot of Democrats voting in Democratic primaries, people moving out of the party. I mean, it's a real switch away from the two. And it's, by the way, it's both ways. Uh, and so there's really, a, there's upheaval, you know, in the parties, you know, that he's, you know, created. You know, what I, what I think is going to happen is there's like two dynamics. When I talk about What's going to happen in the midterms? What's going to, and what's going to happen with the Trump voter? Look, some Trump voters, most Trump voters, are base Republican voters. It's an overwhelmingly working class, you know, party, particularly in the, you know, in the, in the Midwest. Um, and Trump brought new voters in, who are who are motivated by his passion to keep America, save America, uh, from its multicultural destiny. And these are new voters and they vote straight ticket and they're overwhelmingly, you know, they're overwhelmingly white working ones. But he's also, but he's also had delivered a message for working class voters coming out of the Obama presidency that said that Democrats, you know, they rescued the banks. Uh, you lost your, you lost your homes, um, your incomes, wealth were you know, lost during the period of democratic governance. Um, they were, content with kind of the cosmopolitan metropolitan centers that, you know, doing well. 
Um, they were aligned with the banks and financial, you know, financial elites. They support these global trade deals that cost American jobs. And he was making an argument that eroded, persuaded existing voters. We're talking about a couple points, but that's, that's all, as we've seen what's happening in these, how close almost every Midwest state is, you know, in the blue wall states, you know, that's a critical piece. That, by the way, that's not just true of white working class voters, he eroded, you know, black working class voters, you know, Hispanic, Latino uh, working class voters as well. And you know, 70% of Latinos voters are working class. That is not, do not have a four-year college degree. And you know his message, kind of anti-elite message, but also describing the Democrats as being out of touch with what's happened to you in the post-financial crisis, you know, and enabled you know Republicans to gain a few points. And so, in my kind of Macomb County world, my kind of working-class voters that you're persuading, you know, in that in that battle, you know, there was a couple points of you know of erosion, but much more important were the new voters that came in. So you have these two things going on. You have a persuasion battle for existing voters. And then you have the new voters that came in who were voting straight ticket and, were, and, and had a different narrative. They were, you know, they were not, their motivation was very different. So there's two different kinds of Trump voters and two different kinds of working class voters and particularly white working voters. Um, we're talking a lot about Donald Trump and his continuing uh, hold in the Republican Party and his political strength to the point that, that, that you think he's got a real shot if he chose to run and win the Republican nomination. Um, you describe, um, and I believe coined the phrase, Reagan Democrats when you were first studying Macomb County. Um, and that working class support, as you've mentioned, have gone to Donald Trump. So you've got Trump Democrats perhaps. And then you've been describing more recently uh, Biden Republicans. So let's talk about um, the the other side of this ledger, which is mm -hmm. what's happening on the Republic of the Democratic Party. Let's start with Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. What is a a Biden Republican? By the way, it's a good take on the on the landscape. Um, and if and if and if you look at the, like, there are real moderate Republicans, or there were real moderate Republicans when the battle took. If you look at two thousand sixteen. And that new battle for the Republican Party and who deleted. You know, Trump began with the Tea Party movement. That was his base. He locked up that base of his, and they were obviously the, the ones who had led the revolt against Obama. He then created an alliance, which was not natural with the evangelical voters because he was seen as a fairly secular, you know, candidate. But it was, but he, you know, they, the, Evangelicals admired the Tea Party because they thought they would fight the secular, the you know, the secularism and liberalism of the of the country, and so he forged that you know that you know coalition. But at that time, the moderates, you know, were over thirty percent, maybe thirty five percent, you know, of the of the voters. And then there were like the McCain conservatives, but the moderates were the big block, and they were like pro choice, pro gay marriage, and there was like no candidate. If you, look, if you look at the nomination, they competed to be the most pro-life in, you know, in, in distinguishing against Trump who couldn't be trusted on these issues. But they did not get the fact that there was these moderates and particularly moderate women, more college educated. And they, you know, year after year, they kind of defected from the party. I think they're about, in our poll now, they're about 15% of the party. Now, if a third of them Defect that <laughs> matters, you know, a lot. But they are the, the place they are playing out is is what's happening, you know, with Biden doing very well, you know, in these more college educated and Republican suburbs. And I think those are very much the you know the Biden uh, Republicans. Um, you know, many of them don't think of themselves as Republicans anymore. They they're very explicit. They used to be, and so they're on some. They're on. They're on kind of a. A spectrum from still in the party, you know, to being independents, to becoming Democrats. Uh, but the moderates, kind of socially liberal, you know, moderates, you know, are his, you know, are his battleground where he's, you know, his approval rating is, you know, is fairly high um, and can be even higher. And hopefully this will get stronger as we get toward the, uh, the election. Uh, but that's where, you know, that's where the Biden Republicans are. So, um, 
Um, you know, you go back to the 1930s, uh, FDR and the Democrats built something known as the New Deal Coalition, and it had, you know, very strong support mm -hmm. from the working class. Um, and this New Deal Coalition uh, controlled uh, politics and even lingered uh, in a weaker form mm -hmm. into the 60s and 70s. Um, why has the, the why has the Democratic Party lost the working class? Look, I think they lost the working class. Look, they, the biggest drop off from, from, you know, came in Obama's presidency. Part, look, part of this was a racial, you know, resentment. You have, you have the first African-American president, you know, you know at play. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't, the, only, wasn't the only thing. Uh, you know, if you listen to Obama, um, he was describing his economic plan, which most voters thought was a bailout of the banks. Um, I mean, there was obviously the, the oh, his larger package, but what voters saw was the rescue, you know, of the banks um, as kind of the dominant, you know, piece of this. And there, there was like this visceral: how could you be rescuing the banks who then got their bonuses uh, when they produced this deep, you know, deep recession um, that they struggled out of? Took his whole presidency to come out of. He made the argument throughout his entire term that we're headed in the right direction economically. We have, you know, created 8 million jobs, 16 million jobs, 20 million jobs. But people thought those were, they knew those jobs didn't pay what they used to. They had to combine multiple jobs to, you know, to get back. It took his whole presidency to get back to the median income, uh, you know, where it was when he was elected. And I think that's, that's seared uh, into working class voters that he, you know, was not with them, didn't, you know, was out of touch with what was happening, you know, in their lives. And to be honest, Hillary Clinton, you know, was, her message was build on the progress. Uh, if you look at 2016, people thought the country was in the wrong direction, the economy above all, uh, were, thought they were struggling economically. They were running on build on the progress. That was their message. We just, and it's, so that was a searing decade that drove those voters away. Um, I, I think that makes sense. I would, I guess, I would trace the trajectory of the working class um, sliding away um, a little earlier. I mean, George Wallace ran on a yes. very much a racial yeah. um, campaign, and and he was aiming at at mm -hmm. white working class voters. Ronald Reagan, um, more you know, was mm -hmm. even more successful, obviously, um, mm -hmm. building that coalition. Bill Clinton comes in, and you were part of his campaign. And, and, and if you folks haven't seen War Room, uh, our guest was a, was a star um, in it. Um, but you were counseling Bill Clinton. Don't forget about the working class. And there was a lot that Bill Clinton was doing to try to break away from this kind of Democratic uh, Party affiliation with elites and with, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of snide view of working class people as somehow despicable or Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, Bill Clinton came out of, you know, came out of Arkansas, was elected many, reelected many times, you know, as a governor, you know, of Arkansas. And he, you know, he would win white working class votes and but and heavily black votes as well. And so when he in the primary, you know, he went to Macomb County uh, and gave a speech uh, at Macomb County Community College and also the next day at a black church in, in Detroit. Uh, and he gave the same speech. And uh, which he appealed to them and saying, look, they've been putting you, they've been putting you against each other when in fact they both don't want you to make demands for rising incomes, have an aspiration for the middle class and have the unions and working people call the shots again. And it was a kind of a very populist message. I'm not going to govern for the, you know, those top rung, but those who are trying to work up that, uh, the rung. And he gave the same speech both places and he, you know, and he, he carried Macomb County. Well, it was obviously in the primary, but also, also in, the, uh, in the general. But it was also a formula, you know, for having a diverse coalition that was heavily working class. And by the way, I think Democrats can get there. I think the, uh, when we talk about Biden Republicans, uh, you know, I have data that I'm looking at right now uh, uh, on reactions to the what the administration is, you know, doing. Uh, 
you know, for the first time in a very long time, we're actually seeing real direct, you know, benefits. It began under, you know, during the pandemic, um, some of it under Trump, uh, in which you saw the direct, you know, payments. You know, if you look back to, you know, to what Democrats have been trying to achieve um, since Truman, you know, with Truman, you had, you know, being for universal health care and other kinds of things that were really empowering workers and supporting unions. But after that was pretty much, we want to manage the macro economy in a way that, you know, we were able to bring everybody up, uh, you know, different from the Republicans. You look at the argument Bill Clinton was making. We were making that our, if we have, if we manage the economy right and people have confidence in us, that you know, they'll invest, it'll help working people. So deficit reduction was like a big part of our initiative, but there was very little. And if you look at the Obama, you know, initiatives during the financial crisis, it was still about managing, getting the economy back to where, you know, where it was. Uh, but it was an economy that really was very good for working people. But if you look at what the Biden rescue plan is and build back better, we're talking, if you look at the, you know, if you look at the child tax credit and how popular that is with working class, white working class voters under 50 and with parents and white parents, um, you have Democrats delivering very direct benefits very visible, appreciable improvement in their people's lives um, that they're seeing monthly. And they're, they're on a different course. So it may be that, you know, the Biden formula, New Deal formula, his own New Deal, obviously, will create, you know, Biden Democrats um, that, you know, changes the formula that we're used to. And yet, as, as this has been happening, Joe Biden's approval rating has, has dropped from the mid-50s yeah. now about 46 percent, and as you know, um, yeah. the performance of the in party, which would be the Democrats, because they control mm -hmm. the White House, mm -hmm. is is tied in various ways mm -hmm. to uh, presidential approval. Um, so, do you think there may not be a translation of Democratic uh, legislative accomplishments, perhaps for the working class? Uh, will it be recognized, and will it offset this? this kind of uh, backlash that's been occurring against Biden? Um, I wouldn't call it a backlash. Uh, the, and, I, and I think it's, it's way too early to tell in terms of what the, you know, the mood uh, will be at the time of the election. But I, th I think right now what people see uh, is Afghanistan in, in, in which the, an area where they thought he would be you know, the most competent in, you know, in handling it. So I think it pulled back from that. Uh, you, you know, you also had on the pandemic and managing COVID, um, they went from a sense that it was headed in the right direction, I think, to a period of uncertainty. Uh, and then you, what they see from Congress is gridlock. Like you and I know that we're a few weeks away and a few votes away from what might be transformative legislation. But I, what I think voters say is gridlock. And so I, th I think it's way too soon to say what will, you know, what will happen you know, you know, once the economy is stronger in a sustained way, pandem the pandemic is managed and viewed more positively and then very real concrete uh, benefits to people. So uh, just to provide a little perspective on this, 538 uh, did some analysis, particularly of the generic um, congressional uh, ballot as it's called, which is just a, a, a kind of non-named uh, contest among candidates for Congress. We've been studying this stuff for years and 538 did a, a bit of a dive on it. And here's one of their conclusions. So far, it looks uh, a lot like former uh, President Barack Obama's 2010 midterm election. Now, just for folks who don't remember this, this was a clobbering um, in which Democrats lost 63 seats in the House, the worst wipeout, um, you know, going back about six decades. Um, and they lost six seats in the U.S. Senate, though they still hung on to their majority. Um, is that a possibility? Do you see that kind of uh, savage backlash against Democrats? Or no. Well, first of all, I don't. I don't think. Look, look. If the Democrats can't pass their, you know, the, the infrastructure package and um, and the reconciliation package, you know, the that will raise huge questions about their ability to deliver. And I think that will concentrate the mind. So I really don't expect the Democrats will freeze, you know, on, on that, on those key things. Uh, but if you look at what's happening, you know, in the elections, look at California. 
you know, even though we have Republicans, you know, with higher intention to vote in, in our very high compared to Democrats, doesn't appear to be playing out in Republicans being in, in actual elections uh, in which otherwise you, California would not have been one in which, uh, you know, his margin was slightly better than the margin he had when he you know, was first elected you know, governor. And so I, I don't obviously get to watch Virginia and there'll be more time for this to play out by, you know, by the fall. And we'll, we'll know much more than obviously about what Congress has produced, uh, you know, under Biden. And so I would wait for Virginia to make that, you know, judgment. Um, but the generic ballot, I believe, was a couple, you know, was like plus two or three points. Yeah. I think, you know, on average, right. uh, the uh, what uh, I what I what I as I understand it, uh, what first of all, generic is an important predictor, but it all and it also overestimates the Democrats, right. you know, by about three points. So the right now it's about even, which is where it is now. It's not 2000. It's not 2010 where Democrats, I believe, lost by seven points. Yeah, but you'll remember that in 2010, uh, the closer that um, Democrats got to the 2010 midterm election, the worse the situation yes. got. And that's kind of what 530 is. Let me move on. I want to ask you, uh, we've got some great questions here from our friends who are, who are listening in. Um, you've talked about, you know, some of the periods where Democrats were in power and uh, it wasn't clear what they were delivering, you know, for instance, uh, Barack Obama bailing out the banks. The other part of Barack Obama's legacy is the Affordable Care Act, which mm -hmm. has brought coverage to uh, tens of millions of Americans who didn't have it before or had an adequate coverage. Question. Yeah. Um, uh, um, why do white working class voters seem to be voting against policies that help them? Well, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act, it was not very popular with working people. <laughs> um, and if you, um, if you look now, you know, you know, after many years, there's a, there is a small majority in favor of, it's not like other social programs. Like Social Security or, or Medicare, where you know where your favorability, you know, probably seventy percent. Mm -hmm. uh, the it was a promise of cheaper healthcare, and it became a focus on universal healthcare. Um, but it was, I mean, think of the system. I mean, I mean, I interviewed a lot of working people, including our base voters. You know, in the two thousand and ten midterms, we had a four, we had a forty percent disapproval with our base. Mm -hmm. If I look at you know minority voters, I looked at unmarried women. Um, they had a negative rating on the Affordable Care Act because what they saw was they were being required to buy insurance that was unaffordable, um, at high deductibles. They couldn't afford to use it. They had to pay a fine if they uh, if they did you know if they didn't have insurance. And people were really angry uh, about it, and it was not popular in our base. It did not deliver reduced healthcare costs for our but, base. But let's yeah. shoot ahead, let's shoot ahead a decade. And it, it has become um, popular. It's more than 50% support. And part of it is because Republicans threatened to take it away. And now people are yes. sitting up and saying, oh, I, I am counting on these benefits. You're, by the way, you're absolutely right on the, and if you look at moderate Republicans, that, and I think I have it in my, in my survey, um, they were very high on the Affordable Care Act. They were, that's what distinguished them, uh, you know, from other Republicans. So yes, it's a very important piece. But don't miss what happened with Biden uh, in his recovery plan, which locked in, I think, a maximum eight point five percent of income, you know, for deductibles. I remember listening to a, a you know, a, a Trump voter who said to me. Was in, instead of in the, to the moderator in the focus group, he says you know every year I would go to I'd go on the exchange, and I thought maybe there's really this chance that the my insurance I'd get some subsidy, and it would actually be lower. And every year I'd find out I'm not eligible, you know, for the subsidy. Uh, we now find that 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 what they've now done on that 8.5 percent maximum is really lowering their premium dramatically, um, and that's one of the pieces that is to be extended in, you know, in the Biden package, you know, if it passes, uh, it's, it's a very visible reduction of healthcare 
premiums, so, which so, hasn't happened yet. So just so going now. back to the question, <laughs> your yeah. answer, as I understand it, is that the white working class will appreciate Obamacare more as yes. the, the benefits become more generous. Biden really, but look, Biden, both, look, Biden and Sanders, both Sanders and Biden, you know, Sanders was for Medicare for all. And right now he's trying to have a reduction of the age you know, of eligibility, you know, for, for Medicare and reduced drug costs. Biden has, you know, been pushing for reduced premiums, but they are, Democrats are focused on costs for the first time. And that, that is a, a real chance to impact them. Okay. And go from a program that's not 55% support, but 75%. So I'm just going to summarize for the person who asked this question that, yes, I think Stan Greenberg believes that in the future, as Democrats attack the cost, that the white working class will come to see the Affordable Care Act as um, serving their interests. Next question. Yes. Um, has the, um, the language around defunding the police and the efforts of Black Lives Matter uh, contributed to uh, Trumpism. Yes, it's it's very much hurt the Democrats. Um, you know, in two thousand twenty, it was it was it was the, the major you know downside. By the way, my wife is, is, a, is a member of Congress. She ran for election. All the ads, all the questions at her was on whether she was for defunding the police, and they really did control the narrative. That Democrats were defunding for defunding the police, and it contributed to the you know to the you know crime rate. And our data now shows that Democrats actually can really substantially uh, you know aid their position by being very clear about not for, being for funding and respecting the police, also having reform, uh, but dealing with police very differently. Um, question uh, from uh, one of the folks who's joining us. Could you say something about the people who do not support Donald Trump, but are concerned about the extremism of liberals? Well, I don't want to talk about the extremism of liberals. Look, there is, look, I believe the, there's a thread, you know, through the Democratic coalition um, that didn't respect working people um, and didn't, didn't understand why that many of them voted for Trump, you know, in 16. Uh, I, the formula changed, you know, in 20 when this became a so con so overtly anti-democratic racist campaign, you know, aimed at, you know, at, at immigrants. Uh, but but coming into 2016, um, I was I was angry at Democrats for not getting that these voters had reasons to be for Trump. Uh, in the end, because he was so racist and anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican-American, under no circumstance you should have voted for him, but they had reason uh, that were understandable. Part of it was the elitism um, and kind of the cultural liberalism um, and not kind of understanding the values uh, that many of working class voters brought to life. Okay. Um, we just had a, um, a, a significant election in California in which uh, the effort uh, to unseat, recall um, the governor, Newsom, failed by about two to one. It's obviously a heavily Democratic state, but we did see uh, Newsom and Democrats and Democratic allies using a strategy of, in various ways, running against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and as Democrats think about the Virginia race for governor, um, just the six weeks off, and the midterm elections in November, 2022, do you think that's gonna be a strategy of running against Donald Trump, running against um, what some voters in the Democratic coalition mm -hmm. might see as extremism on the Texas abortion law or other issues? Mm -hmm. Is that gonna be the strategy and try to shift it away from a referendum on the in party and make it more of a referendum on Donald Trump and Republican extremism? Well, first of all, because that's real, okay? I mean, we, have a, we have on one side, you know, what I described at the beginning. We have a MAGA-dominated Republican Party where two-thirds of the Republican voters are now um, you know, Trump loyalists. Uh, and he is leading a process of primaries of, you know, purging those who aren't loyal to him. Uh, and so you're going to go into the elections um, 
in Virginia begin to go into the elections in the midterms, uh, in which they will have been purged, the party will have been purged of those who are critical of Trump. So it's going to be a Trump loyalist party that is anti-vaccination, skeptical on vaccinations, uh, managing you know healthcare, uh, arguing for personal freedom above all else. Uh, and I do think they'll be those public health choices will become central and there'll be and it will become part of a choice in the election and it won't just it won't just be about the incumbent it won't just be about Biden. yeah because we keep talking about the midterm elections right and, mm. and in kind of conflict terms that the in party loses and that's because if you go back to world war ii there is a very steady pattern that mm. the uh, party that controls the white house loses and the magnitude of the loss varies but again mm. 2010, when Democrats under Obama lost 63 seats, is kind of a high water mark. Mm-hmm. Some people even referencing that. So that's that's why we keep referring to um, the um, uh, the midterm dreariness for Democrats. Um, By the way, that that was an election in which Democrats were demoralized um, and Republicans, driven by Tea Party, very much energized. So the, the gap in the vote was produced by this huge gap of, of Republicans voting and Democrats not. Uh, again, I, we had 40% disapproval amongst Democrats of Obama uh, at that point in the election. And so the, it was an election in which there was that kind of huge gap. If I look at my current data, right now we have Republicans very high on their, how closely they're following politics and Democrats significantly behind them. But above 2018, that is above the midterm, where it was in the midterm, which was an historic high turnout. So I don't think we're dealing with an election in which we're going to have one party engaged and the other demoralized. Uh, I think it's a question of both parties engaged and and which party is more engaged, which is, I think, a a different dynamic than uh, radically different than 2010. Um, Stan, we've got a number of really good questions here. Can we go like to um, sure. condensed? Uh, okay, and that's on me too. Are you telling me? To, are you telling me to be shorter? In my response, I'm talking. I'm addressing it to myself as well. Sure. We've got several questions that are really not following. Why it is that the white working class has been propelled by this racial resentment and drawn to Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. One question asked: What specific fears do white workers have about multiculturalism and people of color? Well, look, they think they are, you know, lose, they think they are losing out to, uh, in a country that is destined to be a majority and is, and is uh, majority, you know, people, you know, of color. Uh, the, to be honest, I'm not surprised. I mean, look, we have a, we have a history, a long history uh, where race goes back to our constitution, where, you know, race was central, the choices that were made, uh, you know, we had a civil war, um, we had a you know a period after where, where you know where racial racial segregation, you know almost a century of racial segregation. And if you and if you look at you know where racial resentment is the greatest, you can go back to those counties in the deep you know in the in the black belt in the south and find the ones that are voting most on race. So just racial conflict has been so central. If you look at you know the what happened with the civil rights movement, you got the mass mass migration, World War II, you know and the, the 60s to the cities. So huge upheaval, you know, in, you know, influx of black workers, you know, coming into the, you know, into the cities, competing for jobs, you know, some of it economic, some of it, you know, racial, but the, it's hard for it to somehow not become racial given the entire history. It would be, it would be a surprise if it wasn't. Mm. Some of your former colleagues refer to this as a tension between an in-group, white working class, and the mm-hmm. perception of an out-group. And, um, and if you're interested, we've got a couple of courses in political science and sociology. <laughs> um, another question, which actual uh, pieces of legislation that were passed and enacted by Donald Trump appeals to the white working class voter? I mean, the piece that was, that was I mean, they hated the tax cut, by the way. <laughs> so the, uh, I mean, I did a lot of research on it. It was not, it was, it was not, they, it wasn't for them. I mean, only the kind of the base Republicans would kind of justify it, but, but not for working class voters beyond the absolute loyalists. Uh, the, um, uh, no, it was the, 
you know, and it wasn't things that he was really for. Actually, you know, you know, the uh, uh, he did instinctively come out at the outset in favor of you know direct you know payments uh, to households, you know, per household, uh, and that was really popular. Our research, you know, showed it being very popular, you know, after after he left office. Also, his trade, you know, his trade policies. I'm being a, you know, a skeptical of NAFTA. Yeah, and of course, there are a lot of Democrats uh, who remain that. Um, question, is the Democrats' desire to, um, to attract and hold the moderate Republicans who may be defecting um, make it more difficult to pursue um, policies that promote greater economic justice? Is there a tension there? Yeah. Um, you know, you're, I mean, you're highlighting something that is really central to how the parties are changing. I mean, you have the Republican Party that is just overwhelmingly, you know, a working, a working class party. Um, and all the gro growth has been working class and white working class. When you look at the Democratic Party, uh, about half are liberals, about half are moderates. Um, you, you have, you know, you have about 45, you know, 55 percent that are working class, you know, and 45 percent, you know, college graduates. And that's, you know, and that piece of it's growing. Um, you know, I'm looking at you know reapportionment in the state of Connecticut, where my wife is a member. The most Democratic district, you know, is Fairfield County, the one, the richest county, close to the richest county in the country. Uh, and so, yes, it is uh, makes for interesting tensions. Though it's interesting if you look at the, you know, what is uh, the negotiations over the uh, the reconciliation package and infrastructure package. You know, Democrats are united on climate change. They're united on the, you know, on work and family policies. Uh, they're united on taxing the rich more. There are, you know, they, they aren't fractured on like pretty big, important things. Um, I guess a comment and ask for your, res your response. Um, I would argue, this is the question, mm -hmm. that there is a white liberal elitist viewpoint in the Democratic Party and that the working class has a reason to be turning away from it. Yes. <laughs> the, look, I, I think the, um, I think the financial, uh, the financial crash was, re was really a searing event uh, where people suddenly lost wealth and, you know, and jobs and, and took a very long time to come back. But Democrats who governed in the cosmopolitan parts of the country weren't angry about the fact that working people uh, were struggling. They were, they were, the Democrats did not look like they were angry about why it took, why jobs were you know, paying, I think about a third less, the new jobs, a third less of what they did you know, before the, uh, the crash. Um, but Democrats you know, weren't exercised about it. It, was, it wasn't their dominant focus list as two or three policies that would epitomize this uh, liberal elitist uh, viewpoint? Well, I think you, look, I think police, I think the police issue and the crime issue is important. And I, and I would you know, look at what happened in New York, you know, in that election, because that's where, you know, that's where it you know, played out. Now, look, we have, we had Donald Trump who was incredibly reckless and trying to you know fan you know the racial divisions you know in, you know in the country, um, and you know and focused on crime you know in democratic you know run cities, you know but the the police on the front line there you know most urban voters most urban voters of color want more police now they want the right training and accountability but they want more police they want reform. Um, but they weren't looking for I think the defunding of the police was a was a really big blow in terms of who Democrats were for. And I think it, it's I think that's the piece that made the most elitist and not understanding that their own voters. Like the problems that Democrats have on elitism is for their own voters. They don't understand. They talk about voters of color, but they don't see that three quarters of Hispanic voters are voters without a four year degree or 69% of, of black voters, and that the base of the Democratic Party may be diverse, but it's overwhelmingly working class. Um, and believe the elites have been calling the shots, big money have been calling the shots. Um, and 
Democrats, if anything, are seen to be aligned, you know, with those elites. You know, you know um, what you just said um, uh, collides with uh, big debates going on here in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. where um, we're going to have uh, we have ref we have got. Um, ballot questions, we've got mm -hmm. all sorts of candidate elections on just the issues mm -hmm. you mentioned around police and, um, and crime. Um, so I think we're going to have to get you out here in person. So okay. you can talk to some of those people. Um, okay. A um, couple of questions here on the theme of, is the white working class lost forever to the Democratic Party? Oh. What messages and policies do Democrats have to pursue in order to win them back from Donald Trump? Um, Democracy Corps, which I uh, head together with James Carville, um, have been doing work with AFT and the uh, Center for Voter Information uh, to look at how Democrats win all working class voters. And I've been through the first and second phase of this research, right? and I promise you, this is not a situation where they become Trump you know, Republicans, um, the working class, um, they know it was for the elites. They know he's enriching himself. <laughs> they, you know, the, now the, the base voters who came in the vote for the first time, you know, they're with him, they're, for, they're there for a reason. Um, but the kind of persuadable swing working class is a, is a different story. Um, and, they, and they hate the 1%. When I, when I do these voters, Republican voters, Trump voters, they hate the top 1%. They think the top 1% is calling the shots in the country, not hardworking, you know, middle class. And so I think, yes, I think the working class is very much a battleground. And we should remember that 65% of the voters <laughs> are. <laughs> and if you aren't talking to the working class, then you're not really talking to voters who can win a uh, uh, mandate. Um, several questions here about the January 6th insurrection um, and news reports of late mm -hmm. that Donald Trump uh, made a serious effort um, to overturn the election results. Mm -hmm. Do you think that has lasting impact in terms of the um, midterm elections? Is that gonna be something that voters are gonna weigh mm -hmm. or is that not gonna be a factor or a primary <laughs> factor? Uh, I wish, you know, the, but he, he's, he's made this a battle whether you're a, a Trump loyalist or not. And part of that story is whether you support that this was a rigged election. Um, it's not so much the insurrection, but a, you know, a, rig a rigged election, which is at the heart of what uh, of the insurrection that happened. And so I think there's gonna, I is, there, this party is gonna be a party that's gonna be, you know, continuing the fight, you know, democratic participation. Uh, and I think that will be an issue in the election, will be the insurrection. It will be, you know, a you know a party that's trying to battle against democrat democracy in order to stay in power. Um, we've got several questions here about independent voters and a sense that neither party is really working for the country. Uh, the question is, how do people of either party who are interested in respecting each other come back into power? You know, it's hard until, you know, look, the, we have one party that is now controlled by leaders who are self-consciously anti-democratic, racist, anti-immigrant in a country that is a immigrant country, multicultural country. And I believe until they are decisively defeated, we can't get there. That is, we have, we have to go through a period where these forces that are most divisive and polarizing are defeated and feel they've lost. And I, I worry that if the Republicans win any House or Senate, that they'll view it as that they have a mandate and they will go into the next presidential election trying to carry forward you know, that same you know, uh, you know, message and purpose. Um, and obviously uh, we have to defeat it to have any kind of civil debate. We're, we're just about out of time, but I do want to get to one last question. Uh, can climate change be presented and advanced as a populist issue that draws working class support? Yes. Yeah, I mean, climate change is a climate change. It's change. It's, it is changing. I mean, obviously, 
uh, the climate is changing, but the the, conti the continuous extreme weather events uh, you know, across the world, is, in our data, it really is changing how, how much people believe climate change is happening and how much it matters um, to, in evaluating how and how closely they're following what different political leaders are saying. Um, Yes, it'll be a populist issue, but it's 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 already pushing up to be you know a mid-level issue. Um, it's a very important issue for Democrats and independents, um, and I think uh, I think it is kind of, just kind of a growing pace at which it becomes important to people. I want to thank uh, Stan Greenberg for joining us. It's been a terrific conversation. Thank you very much. Stan. Thanks for having. Me. Take care. <laughs>